guys. Welcome back to Talking With TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell. We're up to episode 97 of the podcast, and we've got none other than Dr. Rick Charlesworth joining us on the show today. After that great episode we had with former Kookaburras captain Mark Knowles a couple of weeks ago, thought it why not get one of the greatest men's and women's national coaches. He's also someone that uh, I was reading recently, Captain's Class by Sam Walker, and that book displays the 16 greatest teams of all time. And the women's hockey team from the 90s was actually one of the teams included. Michael Jordan's Bulls were not. So that just goes to show the success over a long period of time that these ladies did achieve. And a big part of that was the obviously the influence of their coach, Rick Charlesworth. So really excited to get him on. He really thinks outside the stock outside the box. He's got a very unique style of coaching and his leadership structures. So it's going to be great to pick his brain. If you haven't heard of him before, he is second to none in terms of, like I did mention before, he coached both the men's and women's national teams. He led the women's to two Olympic gold medals. Himself as a player, he actually captained the Hockey Roos as well as being a professional cricketer as well for the WA, and he captained the state as well. Away from the game, he's a doctor of medicine. He's been a politician for 10 years, so he's just someone that just really is really, really intriguing, and I'm just going to sit back like yourselves and enjoy just learning from an absolute champion bloke. If you're first time here, please visit www.talkingwithtk.com. All the episodes will be on there and exactly all the different platforms where you can listen to the show. Please check out the back catalogue of episodes, which included, as I mentioned, Mark Knowles, but plenty of legends across all different sports, such as Pat Cash, Robbie Madison, Paul Carrigan, David Campisi, E.T. Andrew Weddinghausen, Wayne Swass, Mark Hunt, Brett Kenny, Steve Monaghetti, Luke Egan, something from for everyone from all different sports. So please go back and check out the catalogue. Please connect with me. Probably the easiest way is probably on my Facebook page. Have a look at Talking With TK. Or please get in touch. Send me an email, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. Guest requests for Season 2. We're nearly wrapped up Season 1, which will finish in the coming weeks. We've got recordings ahead this week with NRL champions Kevin Campion, Mark Geyer, and the 100th episode will be Alex McKinnon. So please be on the lookout for that. And like I said, visit www.talkingwithtk.com for all the episodes. All right, excited to bring this episode to you, and I introduce Dr. Rick Charlesworth. All right, guys, my special guest is Dr. Rick Charlesworth. Rick is a legend of Australian hockey as both a player and coach. His playing career included 227 games for Australia, four Olympic Games, and also a silver medal. He had the honour of captaining his country as well. His illustrious coaching career, including coaching both the men's and women's national teams. His women's national team, he led them to two gold medals in 96 and 2000, a World Cup in 94 and 98, and a Champions Trophy win in 93, 95, 97, and 99 in a period of time which was regarded as one of the most dominant teams in sporting history. Rick would also lead the men's team successfully for a period of time between 2009 and 2014. He's a multi-sport athlete, having played and captained the WA State Cricket Team while he was a federal member of Parliament for 10 years, and he's also a doctor of medicine. A welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rick Charlesworth. How are you, Tristan? Doing really well, mate. Mate, that's just dead set taking like two minutes. I'm out of breath now. Podcast over, buddy. <laughs> well, Rick, what I really wanted to do first up, because my mum's a big fan of Shakespeare, so in doing my research, I know you have the same sort of love for Shakespeare, so kind of where did that all start? Oh, we did it at school, you know, I watched plays at various times for, for a while there, I had a girlfriend who was an actress, um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I was always interested, when I was coaching, of course, I, I, there were lots of messages you use from other coaches and from history and from politicians and and uh, I had a bunch of stuff from Shakespeare and so uh, I utilised those from time to time and that ended up being a little book that I wrote a you know maybe a decade ago called Shakespeare the Coach 
which is a whole bunch of uh, aphorisms, if you like, from the Bard, which are as relevant today as they were 400 years ago. Mm. So what would you say, would he have more of an effect on your coaching career or your playing career? Oh, not, 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 not really as a player. It was only after when I started to think about motivation and, and all of those things that happened, and I, I suppose uh, I uh, became familiar with uh, many more of the plays and uh, the stuff that uh, Shakespeare had written. But, you know, I mean, like, there, there's stuff on motivation, on teamwork, on, uh, on uh, skill acquisition, uh, you know, uh, how you uh, succeed and fail. Shakespeare was the first writer to put real meat on the bones of his characters. So you saw them warts and all, and and uh, they talked about why they succeeded and failed, you know, and the things that were happening. Yeah, so when you were talking to your players, in terms of, you know, you just mentioned that word failure, how much would you actually bring that up in conversation? Oh, I think, you you, 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 you know, I remember walking off the field once uh, after a match in Perth. It was a final of a tournament, and we'd been unsuccessful, and a journalist put a microphone in front of me, and he said, well, well, uh, you know, did you expect to lose? I said, no, I never expect to lose, but I know it's one of the possibilities every time you go out there. And and you have to be able to deal with the, you know, I mean, I think Kipling said those two imposters, you know, success and failure, you have to deal with them the yeah. same. And uh, one of the realities of life is that things don't always go well. Um, yeah. You aim, you've got to be ambitious, you've got to work hard to uh, be successful, but you understand that the other thing can happen. Yeah, absolutely. When, how old were you when you started to reflect that you know losing was a part of life, and you have to, you did have to deal with some sort of failure in your life? Well, I think every time you, when, when, whenever you're a young kid and you start to play sport, we all, we all like to win, but pretty soon it becomes obvious that uh, sometimes the other people are better, or you don't have any luck, or something goes wrong, and uh, and you, I think it's one of the most important lessons that you learn growing up you know, to uh, to deal with those things. And indeed, in a time where everybody wins a prize and you all did marvellously, um, I think we do a disservice to our kids in some ways uh, when, when we present that position because real excellence is about a lot of hard work, lots of uh, trying again and again, success and failure and, and, and finding a pathway for yourself. Um and so uh, you, n- you need to understand those things right from the beginning. Every time you play sport, even with the little kids at primary school, they keep the score. You know, they want to know <laughs> what the score is. And so you, you better, that's, that's part of the deal. Yeah. What about, you know, with kids in these days, you know, they give up participation medals versus winning, losing. What way do you think is more beneficial for kids? Pretty interesting. Well, I've got two teenage boys now. At my age, that's a triumph of optimism over experience, I think. But uh, um, I've got five children altogether. But they're cleaning out their rooms recently, you know, yeah. and and uh, throwing out all the junk. And there's all these trophies there, you know, and they're all in the pile to go out for the junk. And I'm like, well, don't, don't you want to keep it? They're all the participation ones. When I made 100 or I got a hat trick or something, I want to keep that one, you know. But the ones for participation, um, they don't put the same edge on them either. And what's the message that you send? You know, turning up is good enough? No, it's not. If you really want to be good at something, then you've got to, you've got to apply yourself and, and, and stick at it. And, and I think uh, that's a more important message. When you were growing up, obviously in WA, you know, you played a lot of sports. You know, you played AFL, you played cricket, you played hockey. In terms of kind of reaching balance as well as I'm sure that your parents probably pushed your tool work as well, can you give us insights onto exactly how you played so many sports competitively and kind of how you de- continue to develop? Well, it was it was <clears throat> it was an environment in which sport was important. You know, we did a lot of it <clears throat> at school. You played footy and and cricket or tennis, <clears throat> and you did swimming athletics in between. You know. Um, we had a teacher at our school who, who, who was a Welshman who was uh, interested in hockey. So we had a hockey program too. And I, uh, my elder brother had played, and so I played. We had nobody to play against. Some of the other primary schools played hockey. So yeah. we used to play against the, the girls' uh, high, high schools or um, um, private schools. And they had okay, so be- Back, back then, was it kind of more of a female sport than a male sport? 
Well, no, men played too, um, but but it was because we were in the Olympics. This is in the 60s, you know? Yeah. Australia won its first medal at the Olympics in 64. So, and the women weren't playing at the Olympics then, you know? Um, but but it was uh, it was very popular at the girls' private schools. They had the best fields in this in the country. They were they were yeah. billiard billiard table flat, and so it was a perfect environment in which to learn. And we, as uh, primary school boys, played against 15, 16 year old girls. It was a good contest. We had fantastic. We had twenty fixtures a year, and uh, against uh, these schools, and it was uh, fantastic. And I played in the school footy team too, of course. And that was like Friday afternoon. That was regulation sport, but the hockey was something separate. Yeah. And I kept doing that well into high school. But uh, in the end, you know, I didn't like getting beaten up in footy. You'd run out of the pack with the ball and, and you'd, some guy would flatten you, you know. And I thought, oh, why am I doing this? You know, that wasn't very pleasant. You know, and I was I was like best player in my in my underage team, but... <clears throat> I, you know, that, that wasn't for me, and I, I think that's still part of the deal. You know, some sports you get beaten up in. People are happy to do that. I, I wanted a, a sport that was about skill and speed, you know, and so hockey and cricket fitted that. And, uh, you know, there's you need physical courage to play them, but you know, you, you, people don't don't thump you, you know. There's at some point or the other in a rugby match, the best thing you can do is beat up someone on the other team. Um, yeah. That doesn't work in our sport. It, it, hey, same. Just with, with playing with the girls, did that make you, were you the star player on the team or did that make you more look to become a team player and try to create bonds with the other girls and be part of that team instead of just being an individual? Oh, no, no, we were a boys team. There weren't girls at our Oh, front. you would just actually play against the girls, not a mixed yeah, team. Yeah, we, we played against them. No, 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 they weren't okay. the same team. As, no, we, we played against these, these other schools, which were all girls teams, and we were... But yeah, we were primary yeah. school boys, so we were sort of four or five years younger, but quick and nippy, you know, and they were big and strong. Uh, so it was a good good contest. Um, but... Uh, um, you know, one of the experiences I had when I coached the national women's team, of course, a lot of the girls who were very good players in our team had started playing in mixed teams, you know. Mm. And uh, I think increasingly you see in cricket and uh, in footy and a lot range of sports, that's starting to happen, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. So do you think that's a, a big part of development, especially for females, to be in that mixed sort of group, and especially when they're conceding maybe size advantages and things like that? You know, one of the things that pushes the standard is playing against people who are better than you. Now, mm. when I was coaching the national men's team, it was hard to find anybody to play against who was better than us. You know, we were right at the at the top, and so you have to find all sorts of creative ways to make training difficult. One of the best things we could do when I coached the women's team, of course, was to play against boys. You know, because they were bigger and stronger, um, and you know the tactics were the same, but. You were you were stretched by the physicality and the capability of uh, of of your opponents, and that's that's what you need to do. The best thing you can do for young developing athletes is to put them with the, the senior athletes who are a better standard. That really stretches them. Mm. Yeah, back then when you were growing up, was hockey predominantly a winter sport? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, hockey and footy were the same season. And at the yep. end of the season, you started playing cricket, you know, and uh, tennis and cricket were the things that you did in the summer. Yeah, what about back then? Did any of the coaches put pressure on you to maybe drop one or the other? Oh, it was always, there was always, you know, conflicts. It wasn't easy, although that was the time in which you could do it. Um, now, increasingly young people are under pressure at an early, early age to specialise. It's a pity because all of the evidence shows that those that have a variety of sports um, in their background, uh, often develop better game sense, better, you know, uh, um, ability to see what's happening on the field and to read the play. And so, um, I think that's better. And the other thing, of course, that happens if you concentrate on one sport, then overuse injuries come in. You know, having to use different muscles in different sports is actually a good thing while you're developing. Uh, we make a mistake by getting people to specialize too early. But of course, then you, you know, Tiger Woods, started playing golf when he was three, you know, probably didn't do his total overall development that much good, you know, and I think you, we, we see a fair bit of that. One of the good things about sport like hockey is it still requires you to have another string to your bow. You've got to do other things. You're probably not going to make 
too much money as a professional hockey player. Only a few will do that. And so uh, these players uh, are, are well-rounded, better-rounded than uh, many of the professional athletes. Yeah, so before, before you got into uni to study medicine, what was your first job? Um, when I, I, I never really had a job while I was at school because I was pretty okay. busy, you know? Um, no, you would be. Lots of sport and lots of study and not much time for, for, for much else. It's a pretty hectic time, those teenage years. But left school, I got a jo- job in a bakery. Um, I was on the, the milk loaf um, um, trays. I had to lift the milk loaves off the trays and put them there for cooling. Uh, off the conveyor belt, put them on the trays for cooling and, and then uh, yeah. went into the machine that wrapped them and did all those things, you know. Used to start at two in the morning and finish about six. <laughs> so uh, you didn't get Tough a lot of job. Sleep. Tough gig. Well, unless you went home and slept, and I usually went down the beach or <laughs> did other things, you know, because that was the the holidays. Uh, yeah, it, yeah, I, I went to, I went without a lot of sleep for a long time. <laughs> so what would you do? You would two to two to six in the morning. You'd be work, and then I'm assuming you'd go home, have some bread, maybe some training, and then uni training again. No. This was during the holiday. During, during uni, I didn't really have time for work, you know. I lived at home, and uh, and as I said, I had, you know, training uh, every day, and I had study every day, and medicine wasn't an easy course, so you had to you had to put in some time. Um, but, you know, as a holiday job, three or four months of the year, then I, I washed cars. I, uh, my first job was in the bakery. Uh, I worked in a liquor store delivering grog, you know, <laughs> did a range of things. <laughs> so in terms of transfer in terms of skills from hockey to to cricket was it was it a hand eye coordination thing what was the major sort of skills that you would kind of take from one into the other and maybe cross over the other way as well well th- those two complement each other pretty pretty well i played for a team which was called cricketers uh, it was the Claremont cricketers hockey club and uh, it started by a bunch of people who played cricket together during the summer started to play hockey together um, and it's now a very large club. We've got 1,500 members, but it's amalgamated with some other clubs. But uh, So the two sports fitted pretty well. I mean, Barry Shepherd, who was the captain of West Australian cricket team, was a cricketers player. Graeme McKenzie, our famous fast bowler. You know, Ross Edwards, who was a... Uh, Ross Edwards played in the same teams as me. He was a cricketer for Australia, you know. So they, were all, they had a pretty good cricket tradition, Um and the, the two games complemented each other. The ball's the same size, moves fast. You've got to, you've got to be uh, agile, you know. It can hurt, so you've got to be brave. Because <laughs> um, no uh, hats back then, no no helmets back then, right? No, 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 no. When, well, I, you know, I used to open the batting uh, in that time, and, uh, yeah, we're, they were, you weren't wearing helmets, so you had to be good at seeing the ball and getting out of the way. How did you control the fear, though, of the bouncer? Well, I think you are fearful. You know, and it's a it's a pretty scary thing. I was a medical student during my first years playing cricket for Western Australia. And if you go to the Museum of Cricket at the West Australian Cricket Association ground, you'll see uh, a skull cap that I used to wear with my hat in it. It was the first one. It was a bit in the style of Mike Greeley, if you remember, back in the 70s. Mm. Um, I was... Uh, on a on a Monday morning, I was at uh, the hospital, Royal Perth Hospital. We were doing uh, radiology, um, and there was an angiogram going on. And and you know, I, I said, "Well, what's the story with this patient?" And they said, "Oh, he got hit by a cricket ball on the weekend." Wow! And uh, the guy on the table was a guy I knew who played for South Perth as opening batsman. I knew him, and like um, I was all you know, head injuries are a worry. I remember that afternoon I I went to the civilian maimed and limbless who used to make helmets for kids who had cerebral palsy and other problems where so they wouldn't knock their heads and I got them to make me one which fitted and fitted under my cap and I started wearing it that was in the you know 1974 I think so early on um, in a in a time when people were just starting to think about helmets for cricket. Yeah, but you were already in the Australian team for hockey already. What what year did you make your Olympic debut? Seventy two. Seventy two, yeah, yeah, in, in uh, Munich, which was uh, an incredible experience. Really, you know, interesting 
place to go. First, for only the second time I'd been overseas. We went to New Zealand yeah. to play earlier that year. Uh, but, uh, um, yeah, it was an extraordinary uh, experience for a young 20-year-old um, at their first Olympics. Yeah, because considering, like, the period of time where you grew up where you could still get enlisted into the Army, because, like, the Vietnam War, from what I was reading, was a huge part of why you wanted to become a politician. So back then, did you have kind of thoughts? Because, you know, Munich being such a big part of history, especially around Germany and what's happened around the wars, like, what was the feeling like when you actually did go there? Was it still pretty eerie, like, in terms of, like, yeah? Well, I mean, I think Germany was... was given the Olympics because of their phenomenal economic growth after, if you like, the war and the country had been successful and was an emerging democracy. And uh, so but there was still, you know, yeah, the war was, you know, a couple of decades earlier. It was still sort of fresh in people's minds in some sense, I think. But uh, Germany was a very successful Western democracy doing very nicely. Munich was a wonderful uh, city in the south of Germany, um, it was a it was a we we arrived there two weeks before the Olympics started for training and we played practice matches and trained on the fields and we, so it was a halcyon time, beautiful weather, fantastic facilities. We were living in the village, walking across about 500 meters from where we were staying to the hockey fields, and uh, and uh, you know everybody was in and out the gate and you you know you lent your mate your tracksuit and he could come in the village. You know, well, once the game started and the terrible events occurred, then uh, the, the fallacy of that sort of freedom was uh, was uh, exposed. But uh, and then from then on, there was you know soldiers with guns all the way along the fence, and security was extraordinary. And every Olympic game since then, of course, uh, it's such a big event; it's open for people to make a. Uh, a case for whatever their issue might be. And so, you know, but in some ways that was, you know, the early stages of, uh, uh, of terrorism. Yeah. Uh, in, the modern, in the modern era, of course, you know, the state of Israel was, uh, came about as a result of lots of terrorism by the Israelis, you know. So, um, you know, when you look at the history, these things tend to go in cycles. Yeah, Rick, when you look back and, you know, all these Olympics that you went through, the 70s and 80s, in comparison to the teams that you led, the women's during the 90s and then the men's in the 2000s, the way you used to prepare for that biggest moment in four years, the Olympic Games, how much different was it from being a player and coach? Oh, it's a totally different experience. It's much more selfish when you're a player and much more focused, you know, um egocentrically I suspect you know you're part of a team and you want to do well but you've you've got a responsibility to play and you love playing you know as a coach your job is about preparing all of these people for competition you know and in our sport we have we have two big events in a four-year cycle we have a world cup every four years we have olympics in between every four years and they're the big events that you want to play well and you want to succeed in you know and so preparing for those events is uh is very important. I mean, now women hockey players are in London now. They're playing a World Cup in, in the next few days. And uh, in six months' time, the boys will be in India playing, you know, preparing for World Cup, you know, and then two years hence, the Olympics. They're the big events. And and as a coach, it's about, yeah, all of these people, how can we make them better? How can we prepare our team? What do we do to make us bulletproof? What are the things that... Uh, and you spend your time... Um, adding to their skill, developing tactically and technically and, and uh, mm. um, making sure that when you get to that event, people are able to perform at their best. Yeah, you know, your own coaching style and your own philosophy, so to say. In terms of, like, you hear a lot now about coaches getting to know their players on a personal level. Did you do much of that in your style? Yeah, I think that's always been the case. You know, people make a big deal of it now. It certainly wasn't the case in the 70s, but, you know, from the time I started in the 90s, uh, you know, you coach a team, but you also coach lots of individuals, and each one of them has different things happening in their lives and different circumstances that you have to confront, and they need to be, you know, my mantra was always, we're not going to treat you equally, but I'm going to try and treat you fairly. And, and, you know, sometimes some people need much more attention than others, 
sometimes uh, um, you you know you you have to uh, make those sorts of judgments. One of the mantras that I use is that coaching is about uh, um, comforting the troubled and troubling the comfortable. Uh, and you know there are players who need support at different times. There are others who get ahead of themselves and need to be uh, actually brought back to ground. You know. Mm. And you're constantly doing that, and every day there's new challenges and there's uh, issues that are occurring in the lives of, you know, you've got 30 or 40 players in your squad. Um, keeping up with all of that stuff is uh, is uh, demanding, very demanding. The coach ought to be on top of it. You want to know what's going on. You have to uh, understand uh, the difficulties that different players may be having, and you have to treat them uh, accordingly. And And what's going on in their lives very much can affect how they prepare and how they play. Guys, hope you're enjoying today's episode. As I mentioned, a couple of weeks ago, we had former Hockey Roos captain Mark Knowles on the show. And here is a quick preview from our chat with Mark. Oh, I think I always um, have embraced leadership. I always wanted to be a leader. Um, but I think when you're young, you don't actually know what leadership is and what's the best way to do it. So I certainly had to move a little bit. Um, how that came about was Rick Charlesworth. When Rick came on as coach in 2009, and he put um, myself, Jamie, and Liam DeYoung in a co-captaincy group, yeah, he said, um, yeah, the rotation, he said it's really important for you guys to work together as a group. It's really important that you play well. Uh, and, you know, we, we tried to do that. We were certainly moving into a, quite an experienced time in our career. But I think it really hit home to me when... Uh, Rick gave me the sole captaincy at the, the end of 2013. He said, it's not so much about how you yell and scream in a team talk. It's not what you say every video meeting. It's how you're going to play every match. And he said he just wanted me to really focus on becoming the best player in the world. And then he said, your teammates will see that you're becoming this good and they'll see what you're doing every day at training and they'll want to be like you. And I... Um, that to me was a changing moment because I honestly did think that leadership was a lot about talking and telling and uh, you know yelling in a team huddle and you know how to try and motivate people whereas certainly yeah my the way I suppose I've influenced people I hope they would say and I, I do think they would say is that they just saw me doing it so please go back and check out the episode probably the best way is www talkingwithtk.com you can listen to all the episodes or find the device that the podcast will work best on your phone alright guys let's get back to the show Rick I was chatting to Shane Flanagan who coaches the Cronulla Sharks a few months ago and he was telling me about how he likes to keep a lean operation which means that he's only really got two assistant coaches and he does that so no one's got idle hands and they're a big part of the team. Like, what was your kind of assistance kind of... Did you keep the same thing, a lean approach, or did you have a lot of assistance? Well, for our time, you know, people wouldn't have thought we were very lean, but, you know, compared with what happens now, we were. <laughs> um, yeah. And that was about resources. But, I mean, for instance, in the 90s, um, we were well ahead of the game compared with the professional sports, you know, because in the... In the early 90s, I had as many as 18 different people working in my program. Most of the professional teams in the early 90s had a coach and a, maybe a physiotherapist and, you know, um, a massage guy and maybe, uh, you know, a manager or something, you know. Uh, but we had uh, we had assistant coaches. We had specialist coaches for things like goalkeeping in our game, um, you know, just as the cricket team has fast bowling and spin bowling coaches and they have someone for batting and someone for fielding. You know, you need to have cover all those things. No coach can be on top of all of the detail of all of those things, but you you you, you need, uh, and so you need the, 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 those people who have that particular expertise or indeed have the time to, to devote to, to the athletes. Uh, and each athlete at, at that level needs that sort of thing. But, you know, we, we had... Uh, psychologists in our program always you know and that's still something that it doesn't happen very much in a lot of the professional okay. sports for me the most uh, important area of um, of uh, competitive advantage in sport now is in human behavior 
And I'm not an expert in human behavior. I know a bit about it. Every coach thinks they're an amateur psychologist, but why not get an expert in human behavior who can know better and understand? And a lot of your players have got pathology. A lot of them have got things happening in their lives which you're not equipped to deal with and you need uh, assistance with there. Um, you know, we, and we had, you know, biomechanists, physiologists, you know, all of the things, all the things that are part of elite programs now, but in the early 90s weren't. So I think we were ahead of the game way back then. Yeah, you know, before you got the call-up, because you got the, the call-up end of 1992 to take over the women's team, before that, how much coaching experience did you actually have? Well, it was interesting. I was a controversial appointment because I yeah. hadn't coached women much. But from the time I was 17, I was coaching in my club. And I coached my club senior team for four years. I coached the state under-21 team for two years. I coached our state senior team one year when I was a player and the coach wasn't able to go. I was only 23 at the time. So I had a fair bit of experience. And, of course, I knew the caper. I'd, I'd played 17 years in the national team. So I knew international yeah. hockey probably as well as anybody who was around at that time. Um, but I didn't have experience. I, I didn't know the girls that well. Um but indeed, the reason that I, I was in the parliament at the time and I got a phone call, I decided that I wasn't going to stand in the 1993 election. I made a lifestyle choice there. It was an interesting job, but terrible lifestyle, flying back and forth to yeah. Canberra. And so I uh, I decided I wasn't going to stand in that election. And uh, I got a call in about September of 92 from the girls who just got back from the, the captain of the team who just got back from the Olympics in Barcelona, she said, what well, she played in our club. She said, why don't you think about coaching our team? You know, you're not going to be in politics. Um, and, and I'd never even thought about it. It wasn't even on the radar screen for me. And so I, in the end, I gave it some thought. I thought, oh, why not? I applied for the job and uh, um, was successful. But it was, you know, yeah, you've never coached women before. How are you going to do it? Well, and my approach was, well, I, you know, the game's the same. The athletes are ambitious, hardworking, you know, that's a good environment in which to work, and uh, uh, that's exactly what I found. Yeah, as a coach, whether it's the men's or women's, what's the first thing that you do in terms of introducing yourself, or do you get to know the players first? What's the first thing that, you know, Rick Charlesworth does when he steps into a new team? Well, I think you you, you make a commitment, you know. I, I'm I'm here to for us to be successful. I want us to be successful and that's what we're going to be about. I can't offer you, you know, it won't be perfect. Things will go wrong. Um, we're going to have to work very hard. This team, as far as I'm concerned, will be the most important thing in my life except for my family. And, uh, you know, understand that I'm going to try and treat you all fairly, but I won't treat you all equally because you're all different. Mm. You know, that's maybe the, you know, that's the, the crux of the, the, the starting position, um, and you go from there. And uh, we're going to experiment and try things. Um, we're going to give you opportunities. I think the most important thing you do for athletes, you pick them in your squad, you've got to play them, and you have to give them opportunities. And, and uh, by doing so, you're surprised. Many many of them do much better than you thought they would. And But if you, ne if you never play them, you, you, you don't. If you sit somebody on the bench... Um, Effectively, the message is you're not good enough. You know, so right early on, I was very lucky. The rules had changed to allow interchange, and we embraced that right from the beginning. And so, 16 players played every match, not 11 and five on the bench. You know, and uh, that sent a message to people that we we tr trusted them and believed them. And uh, two years later, we'd build real depth in our squad because everybody had played 50 internationals. They all thought they could do it, all 30 of them. Not, not just the ones who got to play, because every time we played, we played them. You know, we yeah. played the whole. So that's one of the the big keys then. When you don't, <clears throat> when you start, when you start with an inexperienced squad, in terms of getting them equally experienced across the board, if you do rotate them and give them game time, two years down the track, you've all, like you just mentioned, you've got a squad that's full of depth, and you've got thirty players that, like you just mentioned, had fifty fifty games to their name. And then they're all competing with each other for a spot for the big tournament. Yeah. That internal competition is really important for developing them and, and for pushing them further. And, and it, it creates uh, an environment in which, yeah, they, they're all looking to improve. Uh, once you do that, 
you know, you, you, you create an internal sort of dynamic, which I, I think is very valuable. Now, you know, lots, often the pressure is, you know, so if you look at our results over a eight year period when I was with the women and the same with the men, in the major tournaments, we were much more successful than we were day to day in internationals because we were often experimenting and trying things. When we got to the big tournaments, then that, okay, now we're in this to, 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 um, get the result. Yeah. You, you know, Rick, after the first cycle of wins, you know, you, you win the Olympic Games, the World Cup, everything that I mentioned in the, the first, just say the first four years. For the remaining three years, how did you get the girls to continue to be motivated when they had already achieved everything in that first block? Well, I think that in the end, you know, I mean, I, I thought we had a good enough group of athletes to win things. But once we'd been successful for a period of time, of course, other teams start saying, oh, it's someone else's turn now, you can't keep. And my, my view was, well, if we're learning more than anybody else and we work harder than the others, why can't we continue to be successful? What is important is your team changes. You have to keep renewing it. And indeed, uh, only half the team's the same four years later. You know, that's sort of general rule. And so in eight years, there's not many of them that are still left, you know. And so you have to keep refreshing the team. Um, and, and that's one of the great challenges of coaching. Uh, and I think, you know, we had very good players. I was a lucky coach from that point of view. The bit I can take some credit for was the sustained, if you like, sustained success of the team, which, which was about, you know, the, the internal dynamic, if you like, the culture, uh, and continually pushing for more improvement. It's interesting though, you know, in your introduction, you talked about my time with the men and the women. I coached the men six years, just finishing like four years ago now. Yeah. And I've got a better record than the women in my time. <clears throat> but really? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we had a better winning record than, than, than with the women. We won every tournament. We slipped up on one day in six years. And that's what – we won two World Cups, um, but we lost the semi-final Olympics in 2012. And that's the – that's the thing that people remember, you know, that, that, that one day. And, and uh, had we won there, then the record would have been perfect. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult, you know, that people look from the outside. I don't think they really understand uh, sometimes what's going on internally. Rick, I was reading the other day, it's a, it's a book by Sam Walker. It's called Captain's Class. Have you had a chance to read it yet? I've read bits of it because I... I spoke to that guy when he was writing the book, and indeed, uh, you know, from time to time, uh, I've done some interviews uh, uh, responding to that because, you know, he 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 entered or well, he started to write the book with a particular idea in his mind, which I don't agree with, yeah. <laughs> and and he continued to do so. Uh, and when I speak to the players in my team, they all say, "Well, that's not what it was like at all." <laughs> but, yeah, but uh, it is very interesting that after all his research, that in terms of the greatest teams of all time, he picked 16 and your team's in there. Well, our team had a pretty special record over a long period of time, you know. But, uh, you know, I mean, one of the interesting things about it was that right from the beginning, I was of the view, and I'd been captain of our national team myself for nearly eight years, you know. Hmm. And I was, uh, I thought captaincy was an anachronism, something from another era. Because when, when the sports we play were invented in the previous century, um, life was very hierarchical and paternalistic, and you did what you were told, and uh, you, you, you did what your father told you, you know, or the, or you, the captain yeah. was the boss, if you like. And I never saw, you know, I've, I've got a, you know, teenage kids now. <laughs> That's not how the world works anymore, you know. Everybody wants to stay. <laughs> But my view was always that you've got a you've got a whole bunch of people in your squad. They've all got something to offer. They've all been leaders in their clubs and in their states and their junior teams and whatever. And 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 uh, none of them have got all of the things that you want that a leader would have. And sometimes, sometimes the captain can divert the team, you know, for their own own reasons. Sometimes people want to be captain for the wrong reason. And indeed, after our team had been successful for a while, and we had developed a leadership group, 
I mean, we had captains and co-captains all the way through. We didn't have one captain at all in our team, ever. And and uh, indeed, when we got to the Sydney Olympics, we didn't have a captain, which was very controversial. You know, there was an article written in the Australian newspaper leading the leaderless team, and I was described as being a communist. And uh, Lennon, <laughs> yeah. And I rang up the journalist and I said, we haven't got a leaderless team, we've got to lead a full team. And... I expect everybody to be thinking like a captain and behaving like a captain and making decisions and judgments and, and comporting themselves appropriately. And so uh, that was always my view right from, you know, early on with our group. And we, we, we developed a leadership group, co-captains. We had four, four captains at one stage. By the time we got to uh, the Olympics in Sydney, we didn't have a captain. Eight people wore the armband in, that, in those eight different games. You know, so, you know, I, I, his thesis didn't really fit with our team, although he tried to. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of these eight people that were kind of in that group leading into Sydney, would you regularly well, we talk to them about? We couldn't, we couldn't or you just, you just pick one the day before or something? Well, you, you know, as I said, you know, they were people we thought. But, you know, if you're going on and off the field, your captain's not on the field sometimes. Yeah. You know, so you had to have alternatives anyway you know and and uh, but yeah we we we, uh, we made uh, selections according to the circumstances you know but we uh, a whole range of different people you know wore the armband during that time yeah that philosophy of the leadership group and then emerging into what you did in sydney was that influenced by anyone in your life previously playing or anything that you studied before no not really no no but you look at every sport in the country now, they've all got leadership groups. They're all got, yeah. co- you know, we we were well, you, doing you it set the standard, so you know, and and so we're all well ahead of it. And there's a chapter in my first book, um, be spear, uh, no, beware aspiring captains, because sometimes people want to be captain because there's more publicity or more rewards or you know mm. whatever. And indeed, we I think we got to that stage in our team. One of the reasons we decided not to have a captain was. There was a lot of politicking in the team, and the best way to divert that was to say, we're not going to have a captain now. Okay, <laughs> you better put your energy into playing well, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, and the expectation that all of you have to behave uh, in a particular way that is uh, like a captain. Once you get that, of course, you get a lot of people contributing, get lots of good ideas coming in, and uh, that's that's valuable. There's, a, there's also a practical aspect to it. The captain's under lots of stress, you know. For instance, somebody like Rochelle Hawkes, who had, you know, was at various times one of our captains, um, mm. she she had to read the oath at the opening ceremony at the Olympics in Sydney. This is a this is a big deal, you know. You know, a massive audience, real, really stressful, you know. And in order to take the pressure off people like Rochelle, who were in the media spotlight, then giving someone else the role sometimes was, was valuable, you know, takes the pressure off them. And the captain can be overburdened by uh, having to do all sorts of things. Having a couple of captains dilutes that. That's, that's valuable for the players. Yeah, how did the... When you introduced that, when you took over the men's, how did they first approach that? Oh, okay. Yeah. It was interesting, though, because we didn't have... In the men's group, we didn't have... Uh, um, such a strong leadership group as I would have liked. And indeed, one of the reasons I think we slipped up in, in uh, 2012 is I thought we were better than we were, you know, in that, okay. in that area. Um, and so, you know, we, you know, I modified it and, and, you know, we, we came to a slightly different model when I finished coaching, in which we had um, one person as a captain. We had a still leadership group underneath. You know, so I, I wasn't fixed on any particular model. It depends on the personnel. It's a bit like the players in your team. If you want to play in a particular way, we're going to play this this system, and your players don't fit it. That's a really silly thing to do. You've got to find a system that works for the players you have and their skills and what their attributes are. If you've got, if you haven't got any good strikers, then you better not play. You know, a really attacking game. You better defend and counter attack or something. You know, you'll find another way to do it. Because uh, you, you have to have, in the end, a model that fits for the players that are available to you. Yeah. Over time, Rick, who's stuck the most in terms of 
a leader that kind of the leadership traits that you like. Was there any one player, either from your playing career or when you coached, that stood out and just really, you know, had those those qualities that you were looking for? Oh, you know, as I said, I don't think you get anybody who who uh, exemplifies all of the characteristics that you want. But probably, you know, probably during my time with the girls and the boys, you know, I think that uh, um, somebody like Mark Knowles, you know, who was the yeah. recently retired captain, was was probably one of the one of the best examples we had. But there are there were other people who you wouldn't know about who were behind the scenes critical to, you know, the culture of the team. Somebody like Rob Hammond, who's now one of the assistant coaches with the Kookaburras, um, was a really significant force in uh, in our team and, and <clears throat> determining opinions and attitudes and culture. Yeah, Mark was actually just on the show a couple of weeks ago and he, he told me that, you know, when you were when you were coach, you know, he loved that period of time. But he also said that you got him aside and said that he needed to concentrate on being the best player in the world. When did that come up and why did you kind of address that part of his game? Well, I think you can get distracted, as I said. One of the reasons that I like the idea of having a range of people taking responsibility for leadership is that you release players from the pressure. And in the end, you know, I was the captain of the national team for six or eight years, but I played after that time. I played for another four years. In some ways, that last four years was more relaxing for me because I didn't have the, the constant uh, um, the need to, to be, if you like, the, 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 the face of the game, the, the voice of the game, the, the person who was always doing the interview. You could just mm. deal with, with playing and I think that uh, most players at some stage rather get to the stage where that's really what they want to do or they have periods where that's appropriate for them. Mark was an outstanding player and and, and a leader but uh, indeed for a lot of the time when I was the coach he wasn't uh, he wasn't our uh, voice or our, our, our front person because uh, I think he still had work to do to get to be the player that he needed to be. Yeah. Now, Rick, I really appreciate you joining me. So final question, I know you've got another engagement that you have to go to. In terms of staying ahead of the opposition, you know, you just led teams that were the number one for just years and years and years. What would be the approach to, like, kind of looking at what your opposition did? And then also, we talked about a little bit before about innovating and being ahead of everyone. What was your approach to that? Well, sport's not that complicated. You can make it more complicated than it is. But... I think that um, I believed in a way of playing which was aggressive and assertive. I think you make a mistake if you um, if you're passive or defensive. You know, you, so you have to stamp yourself on the game. You know, I always expect that you better have really good, you know, um, basic skills. Whatever basic skills isn't isn't uh, the right word because they're not basic. They're you know, high quality skills. We've got to have reproducible skills under pressure, and you've got to you better have that. Tactically, you better be flexible enough to to change. But in the end, you know, I've just been watching the soccer World Cup, and there's all sorts of oh, they've got three at the back or five at the back or this at the back or that. Or they're, they're doing this and as though the players are just automatons. They're not. The players make judgments and decisions. All the important judgments and decisions that are made on the field are made by players, not by coaches. Yeah. And uh, they have to be able to do that in real time uh, in the game because you only get to speak to them before the match and at half time. You know, or they come on and off in our game, so you get to talk to them during the game. That gives you some capacity to intervene. But essentially, they've got to sort those things out for themselves. And I watch the game and there's 11 of them out there playing, but I don't see it through the eyes of any of those individuals. When they come off, they say to me, this is happening and that's happening. He did this, you know, I might not have even seen it. Um, so you've got to create in them the capacity to be a decision maker and take responsibility and make judgments. The most important thing you do is to give them that. They've got to own the tactics. You might have a view on how they play, but you, the players have got to own the tactics. And so... I think that uh, that's one of the things that you've got to create. You've got to create a culture in which there's learning, in which they're contributing, in which you're learning at the same time. The players are the innovators more than the coaches. And so 
if you have a relationship like that, then uh, you, you can keep learning and growing and improving. If you then train hard and push yourself, and the coach has got to do that because players don't like it, you know. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of things that, that are uncomfortable doing that you've got to, you know, you've got to will them to do. Uh, then you start to develop an environment in which your team becomes pretty resilient and can deal with almost anything. Um, you better have ambition, and uh, yeah, you've got to see what's happening in the game. Well, I was there. The interchange rule changed. The offside rule changed. The, there's yeah. a whole range of things. They're constantly changing. Those things are opportunities rather than the, than problems, and uh, you have to see uh, see them as such. Um, so I suppose that's you know a sense of uh, of how you create an environment which is innovative, creative, new, um, outlook and out, outward looking. Yeah, for sure. Well, Rick, I really appreciate you stopping by the podcast. Some really insightful stuff that you've shared with me today. Before I let you leave, everyone get following Rick. You can check him out on his website, www.rickcharlesworth.com. Pick up one of his books. He's got four of them: The World's Best, The Coach, Staying at the Top, and Shakespeare the Coach. Anything else you want to add there, Rick? That's terrific. Thanks very much, Tristan. And that, guys, was Dr. Rick Charlesworth. Please go log on to his website. Plenty of resources. Probably buy a couple of his books. He is a world of knowledge. All right, guys, we're nearly up to the end of Season 1. Up next, we've got Kevin Campion, Mark Geyer, and Alex McKinnon. So if you're right into your NRL, be on the lookout for the three champions of the game coming up. Please visit www.talkingwithtk.com for all the episodes and you can be able to see which device works best for podcasts. If you want to get in touch with me, please like my Facebook page. It's at Talking With TK or simply send me an email, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com. would love to hear from you or also any suggestions for guests for season two. I'm taking them now and I'll try my best to get them on the show and continue our you know awesome chats and bring me more even better content we had 100 episodes for season one as mentioned we've got kevin campion mark guyer and alex mckinnon to wrap up season one so really looking forward to bringing you that over the next three weeks all right guys that's it for this week we'll catch you next week but for now i'm tristan cannell and this was talking with tk